If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the good old book of James. We'll be in James chapter 5 again this week, and we'll be covering, covering verses 13 through 18. As you all well know, we have been going through the book of James for some time now, and we're almost finished with it. Hang in there. I think after today I've got one more sermon. It'll be finished. But it's been great. It's been enlightening. It's been, the, it's been fruitful, to say the least. So today I just want to continue on to see what James has to offer and how we may be encouraged yet again through what's written in his epistle. Let's read James chapter 5 and verses 13 through 18. Verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of Yahweh. The prayer of the faith will save the sick person, and Yahweh will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now this text of Scripture is a battleground for interpretation. It has been interpreted in so many ways for so many years that I believe somehow we may have lost the true point that James was trying to relate to us in it. This is a passage that the Roman Catholic Church uses to support their doctrine of extreme unction in the last rites. It's a passage that would-be healers, false prophets, and TV evangelists all use to guarantee healing if we just pray under the proper circumstances. This passage is used by people for proof that putting oil on somebody will heal the physical body. And to say the least, it's an interesting verse, but it has created more than interesting results in my studies, and I hope to show you those results and what I believe is the proper understanding of these verses. It all starts with understanding the context. Now, I know that that is said often here from behind this podium, but it rings especially true with this message today. We have to understand the context. It's a must. Why, oh, why do we gather context when reading a passage? Why do we do that? It's so important that we understand what a passage is implying by the context of the entire chapter and the book. Basically, the context is the environment of thought in which a given passage is contained. That's the way we communicate. The context is the backdrop of a picture that we're trying to paint. If I told you I opened and closed it, you wouldn't know what in the world I was talking about. I could have been talking about a book. I could be talking about a store. I could be talking about a treasure chest. I could be talking about a court case. The list could go on and on and on, and I could have opened and closed a million things. Without the context, the environment of thought is impossible to derive the meaning of anything anyone says in anything that we might read. So in the same way that I can't just walk up to Tim and say, I opened and closed it, and expect him to know exactly what I mean, it's the same way that we can't just pick a verse out of the Scripture and understand it without understanding the context and the meaning in its entirety. And so with that being said, our text today is no exception. It's not different than anything else that you might read in the Bible. We must consider the context in which this particular text of Scripture is written in as well. Now, we have been studying the book of James verse by verse for over a year now, 
And this is the reason that you do these kind of things. This is the reason that you study verse by verse because the context can be maintained continually throughout the whole entire book. You don't lose it. Throughout whatever you're reading, it's important that you read it from beginning to end. Had I not read this and studied this from beginning to end, I wouldn't understand what I'm fixing to tell you. So just for the sake of context, by the way of reminder, so that we get the complete thought throughout this process, the full context of what we're studying today, let's go back through a little bit of James. In James 1.1, we find that James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's very important that you know who he's writing to. This is, this is very, very important. He's writing to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of scattered Israel. He's talking to the church that was created out of scattered Israelite brothers who have the testimony of Yeshua. That's who, that's who James has target, targeted this whole epistle to. He starts off right away with an admonishment to consider it great joy when you experience trials in James 1. In other words, James knows that, that they were suffering. And so he encouraged them to be patient and consider it great joy. He's writing to them in the midst of troubles and tribulations, knowing that there is hardship and trouble upon them. He even tells them to examine their faith to make sure they stay in it. He tells them to endure without wavering. He tells them to blame to not to blame Yahweh for them, their temptations. He encourages them to be slow to speak and quick to hear. He tells them to rid themselves of all moral filth. He says to be a doer of the word, to persevere in the law of freedom, not to be friends with the world and to continue on serving Yahweh, and proclaiming the name of Yeshua no matter what it takes. And all these admonishments are just in the first chapter of James. So as you can see, the persecution was obviously great at this time. And James is trying to build up the saints and encourage them so that they could endure the trials that were ahead of them. So that the church might stand and the Son of Yahweh might be lifted up and His name might be proclaimed in all the world. That's the intention. Like I said, that's just the first chapter. Now we've went through chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, and now we're almost finished with chapter 5. But the theme hasn't changed. The backdrop of James' epistle is still the same. James is admonishing and encouraging his brethren through their struggles. So then in chapter 5 and verse 7, he comes right back to where he started his epistle and he says this. He says, be patient until the coming of Yeshua. Then he goes on and he gives an example of the farmer's patience and how he waits for the rain. Then he tells them to strengthen their hearts because the coming of Yeshua is near. He reminds them not to complain or grumble against one another, kind of like the children of Israel did, I guess, against Moses in the wilderness. And then he says, consider the prophets, how they've endured for the sake of Yahweh. Use them for an example. They've endured the time. That's that's the whole idea of this whole book, is endurance through trials and having patience. So the backdrop here, what is it that we have? What's the context? Well, the context is a persecuted church. It's a church that is tired, a church that is dry, and a church that is weary. These brothers have been fighting the good fight, and they're tired. They've been in the ditches taking the gospel to the scattered sheep. They've been out trying to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel and all while doing so under the persecution of the leadership in Jerusalem. And they're tired. They're broken hearted. They're exhausted in their efforts. So James starts the 13th verse of the epistle. And knowing all that they've been going through, knowing how tired they are in their efforts, and knowing how, how strenuous it must have been on them, he says this. He says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Do you think they were suffering? I think so. The last time I talked, 
We talked about Paul, how he's drug outside of the city. He was stoned to death for preaching. What about Peter as he hangs in prison between two of the soldiers? Right after he watched James, John's brother, be killed by the sword. That's what what he was going through. There's no doubt the persecution was great at this time. And like none we've ever seen, probably. So he tells them to pray. If any among you are suffering, he should pray. The word suffering here is the word kakopathia, if I'm saying it right. And it means to undergo hardships, to be afflicted, or to suffer troubles. This same word is used only two other times in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. And both times it is Paul talking about enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel and the suffering as an, and suffering as an evangelist. So the word means to undergo hardships or to suffer troubles. James says, if, if this has happened to you, if you're undergoing hardship and suffering trouble or persecution, what should you do? You pray. And by the way, have you noticed that James hasn't mentioned prayer until now? For five chapters we've been reading this, and James hadn't mentioned prayer not one time. Not one time. In all of his instruction and admonishment, in all these chapters, he hasn't mentioned it. But I think it's perfect that he is mentioning it. It's all, it's almost as if he's been building up to it up up until this point. It's it's as if the climax of the epistle is prayer. He hasn't mentioned prayer the whole time, but in the in the next five verses, he's going to mention it seven times. So it's obviously a very important part of James's admonishment. Anyone who can undergo trials and be patient and count it all joy. Who can smile while someone is stabbing them in the back? Who can be a doer of the word they hear? Who can control their tongue and who can seek heavenly wisdom? Who can humble themselves in order to be exhausted, exalted by Yahweh? This person would have to be one that is consistent in prayer. That's the only way that you can do these things is that you're consistent with a prayer life. So prayer and the culmination of it all, prayer is the culmination of it all. If anyone among you is suffering trials, he should pray. But notice the second part of verse 13. He says this. He says, is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing praises. It's a contrast here. As if he's saying, I know everyone is suffering, but perhaps there's someone out there who might be cheerful. Let him cheer up the rest by singing praises. The Greek word for praise here is the, is the word solo. And it means to sing hymns or to sing praises. It's where we get the word psalms from. In other words, those who manage to maintain a merry attitude or a joyful attitude during the midst of a trial can be an encouragement to others. So sing praises. A song that is sung can be just as effective as a testimony that one might give of how Yahweh brought him through troubled times. Many times I've heard Lisa and Rhonda both mention how much they enjoy praise and worship within the songs. I've heard Frankie mention many, many testimonies from people who are encouraged from their music. And it's encouragement not only for the one who is singing, but also for the one who hears. So James says, let him sing. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praises. All right, let's read verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil. In the name of Yahweh. Is anyone among you sick? Where in the world did James just go? We have five chapters of James encouraging the weak in faith and the ones who have suffered. 
He has told us what to do to keep the faith, how to stay close to Yahweh, and how to rebuild their spiritual strength. And now he mentions the sick. Why? That's the question. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. No doubt that people get sick, but it just doesn't fit here. There's no doubt that we should pray for the sick, but it doesn't fit here in this epistle. It doesn't fit in the context. There should be some questions that come to mind here. One question might, that might come to mind is, why does he mention the sick? Number two, what kind of sick does he have in mind here? Why are the elders' prayers greater than the commoners' prayers? Does the prayer of the faith always heal the sick? Why the use of olive oil? Is that some sort of potion or concoction that, that assures healing? What does sin have to do with anything he's been talking about? And what does sin have to do with the prayer of the sick? And what does he, why does he give an illustration about rain, about rain in the middle of a passage about healing? What's the point? Now these are legitimate questions, I would think, right? Well, I'm not going to ask you to do, I want, I want to ask you to do something for me. I want you to set aside all preconceived notions of what you may or may not already know or think you know about this text. And I want you to hear me out for the rest of the sermon. I want you to listen to what I got to say. Because I think it's important. I bring these questions here to your mind and I ask you to remove any previous understanding you may have about all this. And I say all that to say this. I believe the context of this whole epistle points to an inconsistent translation of the text we have in verse 14. It is completely out of place to understand the passage of Scripture to be talking about a healing of the sick people, a physical sick people. It's completely out of context. It doesn't fit. I believe this passage has absolutely nothing to do with the physical healing of the sick. However, it would be very consistent contextually to understand this passage as one that is teaching about a spiritual healing of the weak. A downtrodden brother who has suffered persecution in his week and wore out from his spiritual persecution. Now with that in mind, think back to verse, four, verse 13. James is talking about those who are suffering Spiritual persecution. If you're suffering, you should pray. And now in verse 14, he moves past the one who was just suffering and, he, and should pray, and he takes it a little bit further to the very weak, downtrodden brother, a fallen soldier who has endured to the point of weakness. You have the wounded warrior here, the exhausted, defeated, depressed, beat-up Christian that doesn't have the heart to pray anymore. Do you see the difference? If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're sick, remember that's weak. The word, the word right here should be weak. If you're, if you're weak and you don't even have the heart to pray anymore, you should do what? You should call for the elders and you should let them pray over you. The Greek verb here is asneo. And the translators of every version of the Bible that I have found have translated this word, sick. And as a result of this translation, everybody that reads this verse automatically assumes that the word sick here is a reference to a physical illness. Everybody that reads it, because every Bible translation that I can find renders this as sick. But with a keeping with a context, what does it mean here? All Greek lexicons that I can find, all Greek lexicons that agree that its primary meaning is to be weak, or to be feeble, or to be impotent. Now let me give you some examples of other scriptures where this word asneto is used. Consider Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. It says this, it says, Except anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue 
about doubtful issues. Weak in faith. Not weak spiritually, not sick. It's the same Greek word is translated weak in faith. It says also, also in Romans 4 and verse 19, speaking of Abraham's faith, it says this, He considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's wombs, and the, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, without weakening in the faith. The word weakening right there is the same Greek word as neo. It doesn't have anything to do with physical right here. Both of these verses use the same word as neo, and both times they're translated weak and weakness. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 11 and verse 12, it speaks about the weaker brother and how we should consider the weakness, his weakness, in regard to food and drink. That's the same Greek word as neo. But it's used in reference to someone's weakness in their faith. And last but certainly not least, consider 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul here is talking about how the weakness of his flesh is made known by the power of Christ who dwells within him. He says this, he says this, So because of Christ, I am pleased in weakness, as neto, I'm pleased in weakness, in insults, in catastrophes, in persecutions, and in pressures. For when I am weak, as neto again, then I am strong. This is a perfect example of the use of the word esneo because it's used in the same exact context that it's used in James chapter 5 and verse 14. Paul here, the suffering soldier, is weak in faith and need of the power of Christ to exalt him or to lift him up and carry him through. Now with that knowledge, I want you to take this meaning and I want you to insert it back in James chapter 14. Let's read it, like, let's read it again. In verse 13 it says, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing praises. And verse 14, is anyone among you weak? Stop right there. Has anyone in here ever been so spiritually weak that you just didn't want to pray? That you just couldn't pray? That you just didn't feel like praying? Have you ever been that way? I have. I have. I have. Sometimes you get so weak and downtrodden and depressed even and you just can't pray. You just can't pray. You just don't feel like praying. Maybe it's because of sin that you're hiding within yourself or from some persecution or some kind of spiritual dilemma. Maybe you lost a level. I don't know. Maybe you lost a level and you can't understand why Yahweh took them from you. you just, but you just don't have, you don't have it in you to bow your head and pray. You're tired. You're tired of, you're tired of fighting the, the same fight. Maybe you're worried about something to the point of withdrawal. Whatever it is, you're weak and you just don't want to pray. Well, this is the weakness that James has in mind right here. Not sick. He's talking about a weakness. And because of this weakness, he understands that you might not be able to pray. And so he says what? Call on the elders of the church. Why the elders? Why do you call on the elders? Because they're supposed to be the spiritually strong. That's the idea. Not that an elder might not also become weak. I don't mean that they're always spiritually strong. What I'm getting at is that James is saying, go to the elders, go to your spiritual strong brothers, and have them pray for you. Have them pray for you. If you're spiritually weak, who do you want praying on your behalf? The spiritually strong. You don't want the spiritually weak. You want the spiritually strong praying for you. Those who are patiently enduring, those who have been through hardships in life, who have suffered in the battlefield of faith and have come out stronger for it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it says this, If anyone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are, what? Spiritual. You should restore him. Well, it's the same thing here. The elders of the church are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You can read about the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But the idea here is having someone who is stronger, 
spiritually spiritually strong to pray for you because you're too weak to do it yourself. Brothers and sisters, when you're weak, when you've hit rock bottom, you don't go to the elders of the church for worldly wisdom. That's not the idea here. You don't go for healing. You go for heavenly wisdom. You seek the spiritually strong for righteous prayer. That's what we go to the elders of the church for. That's what they're there for. You go to the doctor for physical healing. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for physical healing. That's that's a must. We should we should pray for physical healing. And Yahweh does physically heal people. I understand that. But right here it's saying that the righteous prayers of the elders are good for raising up the weak. By the way, where is that ministry gone? Where is the ministry of prayer gone that that the elders should pray? Where has it disappeared from? I was listening to a sermon the other day. I, I say the other day. It was probably a probably three or four weeks ago now, I was sitting down there at the lake, and I was I was listening to a sermon, and I can't even remember who was teaching it. It was some, some guy just looked up on sermonaudio.com, and he said something to this effect, and I thought it was a, a great quote, and I'm, I couldn't find it, so I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but he says something like this. He says that the pastoral duty has been forgotten. It's not a call to be a counselor or to offer worldly wisdom. It's, not a, call, it's a call to come alongside a weary Christ, Christian a fellow brother who has been defeated and is in need of righteous prayer from a godly man. That's the duty of a pastor and of the elders. The spiritually strong prayer, not counseling. That's the idea. So back to James, we're still in verse 14. The subject here is prayer, not healing. You might say, what about the oil? What do we need the oil for? Well, that's a good question. In the second part of verse 14, it says, The elders should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of Yahweh. The word anointing here in the Greek in the Greek is the word alepho, if I'm saying it right. And it literally means to crush over or to rub or to smear or to massage is what it means. It's used in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 17 when Yeshua tells people, when you fast, put olive oil on your head so that people don't know that you're fasting. That's the idea. It doesn't mean to put a dot of oil on you. That's not what this this passage right here is not talking about. Put a dot of oil on your forehead. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It means to soften your skin, to rub it in, so you don't look dried up and weak. That's the reason for it. You would come to the elders. They would soften your skin. They would rub oil on you so that they would refresh you, and they would pray for your spiritual well-being, the weakness of your faith to be lifted up. The same word is also used in John chapter 12 and verse 3 where it says, Mary put a pound of oil, of fragrant oil, on Yeshua. Pure and expensive nard and, and anointed, same Greek word right here, alepho, anointed Yeshua's feet and wiped it with her hair. A pound, not a dot, a pound. It literally means to crush over or to massage it in. This makes all the sense in the world, considering the context. It makes all the sense in the world. Here is a man who is dry, weary, weak, downtrodden, and is desperate in need of reviving. And so James says, get the elders to pray for you and let them refresh refresh your dry, parched, tired body with oil so that you feel better and refresh you in your faith. I hope you're starting to get my point. I hope that you're seeing it. I I think it's so important. Let's look at verse 15. It says, the prayer of the faith will save the sick person, and Yahweh will raise him up. Stop right there. Now, the word sick here is a different word. It is the Greek word, kamno, and it means also to be faint, 
weak, or wearied. It is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. It's only used one time. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, and it says this. It says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3, the word sick, is, or the, the Greek word kemno, is translated weary. And in James chapter 5 and verse 15, is translated sick. That word weary is the same Greek word kemno. And I think the reason they translate this word sick is because they've already used the word sick in verse 14 for asneo. So I think the translators are trying to be consistent. They're just consistently wrong. The word should be translated weak or weary, and then it would sustain their original context and their age-old myths of healing people with olive oil at an altar would not exist. Has anybody ever wondered why sometimes we pray for the sick and they're healed and other times they're not? Ever wondered why you come up here and you get you pray for healing and, and uh, you put oil on somebody and you wonder why they don't get well? We wonder why. James says the prayer of faith will save the sick person. If the prayers don't save the person, then James is fibbing us here or either we just don't understand James. And I think it's, it's the latter in this case. I believe that we don't understand James. It should say the prayer of the faith will save the weak person, the spiritually weak person, the downtrodden person, and Yahweh will raise him up, and that lines up perfectly. Then at the end of verse 15, it says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. How can the prayers of someone's physical condition or sickness relieve him of his sins? When we come up here and pray for somebody's physical healing, how in the world can that relieve him of his sins? It doesn't have anything to do with the one or the, one or the other. They're, they're not the same. It doesn't make sense. But it does make sense if someone is praying for your spiritual weakness. And this is why. When, you're, when are you the most vulnerable to sin? When are we the most vulnerable to sin? When we're spiritually weak. Arnold said not too long ago that you will, you'll quit reading your Bible long before you fall away from the faith. And he's right. When you become weak, it's because you're malnourished. You're not nourished. The malnourishment could be from lack of reading the Word or lack of fellowship with like-minded people or from lack of prayer and so on. But nonetheless, when one is weak, he is most vulnerable to sin. So James says, if you've sinned and you're weak, ask for prayers from the leaders so that you can be forgiven from sin. That's how sin is forgiven, right? We ask for, we ask for prayer. We ask, ask Yahweh to forgive us of our sin. That's how we're forgiven of sin. You have to ask for forgiveness. Well, if you're too weak to pray, you're probably going to need somebody to do it for you. And that's why you call for the elders of the church. You're just tired. You're just tired. You're downtrodden. You've fought the good fight. You've gone as long as you can, and you just can't go anymore. So you call for the elders of the church, and you say, Look, brother, I'm falling away from the body. I'm falling away from Yahweh, and I don't know how to get back. How many people have been there? I've been there several times. Just falling away. And beg somebody to plead on your behalf because you don't even know how to pray anymore. Hence the reason for verse 16. Let's read it. It says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. He says, Therefore, for this reason or because of this, because of what? 
Because the prayers of the righteous for the weak are powerful enough to get your sins forgiven. Because of this reason, he says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This word healed is the word Iome, and it means to be made whole. If you'll confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, then you can be made whole. And primarily that means from the errors or sins. What a picture of a pastoral duty. What a picture of the duty for the duties of the elders. This is the job of pastors and elders of the church, not to set up booster clubs and fundraisers, not to organize events, but rather to be spiritual back, the spiritual backbone of the church. That is the job of the elders of the church, to pray and intercede on behalf of the saints so that the body as a whole can be made whole. See, this was a problem in the early church too. In Acts chapter 6, the twelve apostles were approached with a problem that some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And so they got together and they decided that they should select seven good men, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, to deal with such things. The twelve apostles are pastors of the church, we could say. They said this, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about the Almighty to wait tables. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the teaching ministry. That's what the apostles were to do. We will devote ourselves to the prayer and the teaching ministry. Notice what they were devoted to. Not the ordinary things of sustaining everyday needs. That wasn't the job. They weren't running leadership meetings, things like that. They were devoted to prayer. And the the preaching of the word in the congregation, that was their job. The power of righteous prayer is effective. In fact, James says in the last part of verse 16, the intense power of the righteous is very powerful. Then he goes on to give us an example in verses 17 and 18. Let's read it. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Basically, James is saying here, consider Elijah the prophet, just like he said back in earlier in chapter 5, to, uh, to consider the farmer. Right here he gives an example and he says, consider Elijah the prophet. He was a man with a nature like ours. He sinned. He was tempted. He had to work to eat. He got tired. He was afraid at times. He was a man just like we are. Yet even though he was human, not some angelic being or something, when he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, it happened. It didn't rain. This is James' example of the power of righteous prayer. Someone who is just like us. He prayed earnestly. He prayed hard, so to speak. Not just words, but a solemn work in prayer like the prayers of the righteous in verse 16. And let me give you a little, little bit of food for thought. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19, and you read about Elijah here, it never says that he prayed for it not to rain for three and a half years. It doesn't mention three and a half years. It brings about a thought, mentions that he thought he might, he, it, that he might pray, but it never mentions any of this. Only thing, the only reason we know that it, that it didn't rain for three and a half years is because of what James says. It mentions the drought, all that stuff in First Kings, but it never says that he prayed, and for three and a half years the rain didn't come. So James says Elijah prayed that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it didn't rain. Then he prayed again, the sky gave rain, and the land produced fruit. So he's using an analogy of rain. Now, if James was talking about a physical healing, don't you think that there would have been many other verses to go through, go to, rather than one about rain? But if he wanted to illustrate 
how Yahweh sends down refreshing rain on a dry soul who has lost his way in the battlefield of faith and become parched and weary and tired. What better way to give the illustration of an outpouring of refreshing rain? Some might say it was August rain, huh? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, with the right context, everything makes sense. Just as Yahweh sent the rain when he responded to Elijah's prayers, he'll hear the righteous prayers of the elders, and he'll send refreshing rain to the spiritually weak when they're dry and they're desperate and they're needing of refreshing. When you can't get up and you can't go anymore and you just can't make it anymore, you call on the elders of the church and you let them intercede for you. You let them pray for you because that's their job. So in closing, I believe that the proper understanding of James five thirteen through 18 is that it's about healing spiritual weakness or spiritual exhaustion and not at all about healing physical sickness. I believe James is teaching us that our spiritual weakness calls for spiritual healing through the fervent prayers of the righteous. Through prayer in general, also because he first mentions that we should pray ourselves when we're suffering. He tells us to just pray. If you're suffering, if any of you among you are suffering, pray. If any of you are too weak to pray, you call for the elders of the church. And then he admonishes us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Prayer works, folks. It works. Prayer is powerful, and that's why we should go to the strong to pray for us when we're weak. The prayer of the faith will restore the weary. Oh, what a blessing. Yahweh, Father, thank you for the understanding that you've given me. Father, I thank you for the, for the kindness that you've shown me. Father, I thank you for the time that you've, that you've given me to study this, and I thank you for all that you've done. Yahweh, you are mighty. You are the king of the universe, and we love you. Father, I pray that you would let us not just be hearers of this word, but be doers of it. And Father, I pray that when we struggle, when we fall away, when we slip, that we would call on the elders of the church to pray and intercede on our behalf so that our sins may be forgiven and that we might be uplifted, that we may be made whole by the power of prayer. Father, help us to all learn to pray. Help us to be diligent with what we what we know to do Father, help us to love your Son and lift him up every day and to fall at, fall at his feet and know that he is Lord of Lords, Father. We love you so much. I just pray that you'll bless this word to our heart and help us to grow and, and uh, be doers of your word. Receive it with, with eagerness and study it out and make sure that the things that were said are so. Father, we love you and we ask all this in your holy son's name. Amen.